we're not just in the institutional industrial complex. We're not just in the prison industrial complex. I think, the, I think we're in the treatment industrial complex. That's Liat Ben Moshe, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamian. This edition of AR features Liat Ben Moshe on deinstitutionalization. At 11 years old, Lois Curtis became an outpatient at Georgia Regional Hospital for her cognitive and developmental disabilities. She wound up being confined and sedated in mental institutions until she was 27, when Atlanta's Legal Aid Society sued Georgia's Human Services Commissioner, George Olmsted. The case of Olmsted versus Lois Curtis went all the way to the Supreme Court, and in 1999, Lois Curtis won in a 6-3 decision. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg wrote, Confinement in an institution severely diminishes the everyday life activities of individuals, including family relations, social contacts, work options, economic independence, educational advancement, and cultural enrichment, unquote. The case has been called the Brown versus Board of Education for Disability Rights. To talk about deinstitutionalization and abolition is Liat Ben Moshe, a disability scholar. She teaches criminology, law, and justice at the University of Illinois at Chicago. She's the author of Decarcerating Disability, Deinstitutionalization, and prison abolition. She spoke at the Socialism 2022 conference in Chicago. And now, Liat Ben Moshe. All right, so first of all, I thought I would start very basic. Um, and again, apologies for those that this is familiar to. But um, there's various ways to understand disability and madness, and I want to be very clear when I say disability and madness, what that means. So first of all, the common understanding of disability is that it's uh, medical, it's something that the doctor prescribed, something that gets you like uh, disability benefits, um, something that uh, can be fixed or should be fixed, uh, something that should be treated, reduced. It's a lack of an ability, it's some kind of a deficit, and it's definitely an individual matter, right? Like what's your disability? How did you become disabled? And so on. But the way that we understand disability in disability studies, med studies, people who are part of disability cultures, part of um, med pride, we understand disability as something that's socially constructed. So it's something that derives its meaning from historical, cultural, political, and economic structures. It's not something that's inherent in people's bodies and minds. Nobody has a disability. Really important to say, nobody does. The disability comes from interaction with the environment. People have impairments, which are also, by the way, not necessarily deficit-driven and all that. But people are disabled by environment, whether the environment is attitudinal, uh, economic, physical environments, and so on. And so people are are disabled by uh, social circumstances 
which, by the way, it's really important to say that the state defines disability. The state defines disability often very loosely to marginalize people, but then very uh, rigidly if you ask for resources, right? This is just one example. You can see how disability defined a person is still exactly the same, has the same impairment or has the same um, you know, mental difference and so on. But the way that we define disability changes over time and space. I, I think a lot of you know this, but also <laughs> disability and madness are an identity and they have a culture and they're a political identity. And I think it's very important to say this. It's a political identity. Now, not everybody that's disabled or deaf, deaf with a capital D, or mad, mad as in um, crazy, uh, not just angry, not everybody identifies or is politicized as disabled. I mean, I was disabled for a really long time before I was politicized as disabled. Um, And I think that that's also by design, like any other identity and consciousness. You know, not uh, everybody's a feminist, not everybody is a leftist, and so on. And I think that, again, there's a lot of barriers to identification with disability and to understanding disability culture. So why should you think of yourself as disabled, or why should people kind of politicize themselves if they are disabled, but not necessarily, you know, they shy away from that as a categorization or identity. And I think a lot of us think about disability as, uh, you know, there's a lot of oppression in relation to that, but it's also generative, it's productive, it's a way to view the world. It produces knowledge and produces particular uh, ways of resistance. But also, of course, it's a source of both pride and oppression, And I wanted to uh, read to you a definition of ableism uh, that I'm going to kind of build on. Um, This is from T.L. Lewis. And this definition really is built with disabled people of color kind of coalitionally. This is a quote. Ableism is a system of assigning value to people's bodies and minds based on societally constructed ideas of normalcy, productivity, desirability, intelligence, excellence, and fitness. And at the end of the definition, which is much longer, TL says, you do not have to be disabled to experience ableism. This is not to say we're all disabled. Please don't say that. It's not true. And also, uh, we all experience ableism, also uh, not necessarily true. We can all experience ableism, but we don't experience it equally, just like we all not experience sexism equally and so on. There's like a power differential um, here. But what I wanted to really highlight here is that productivity, desirability, intelligence, excellence, fitness, they all are also related to the construction of, again, the labor extraction and so on. And and a lot of these things are also built on, of course, colonialism and anti-blackness and so on. So what I want to talk about today is a particular form of resistance to incarceration, a particular form of abolition that comes from the knowledge of mad and disabled people, and that is uh, deinstitutionalization more kind of specifically. I just wanted to say that this also comes from an understanding of disability justice, and disability justice is not the combination of those two words, disability and justice. Um, disability justice is a particular framework. It's a particular framework that comes from the lived experience of disabled people of color, of queers with disabilities, uh, trans and gender nonconforming people with disabilities, indigenous people with disabilities, and so on. 
It's a framework that emphasizes things like intersectionality, cross-movement solidarity, and is a very strong anti-capitalist politic at its heart. So it's not something that's kind of added to it. This is what disability justice means. People who don't know what it is, you should look into sins, sins invalid definition of disability justice. The thing that's really important for me to say that here is that disability justice brings to our analysis of incarceration and understanding that incarceration happens in more than prisons and jails. Incarceration is a process that also happens uh, in nursing home. It happens in residential facilities for people with intellectual disabilities. It happens in psychiatric hospitals. And this is not to say that psychiatric hospitals are like prisons, but they are all carceral spaces. They're different, but they're all carceral spaces. It's also to say that medicalization is another uh, conduit to both criminalization and to incarceration, and to say that the carceral state and the therapeutic state are incredibly tied together. And I hope you'll see that throughout the talk. So what I bring to this, and then I'll just give you kind of the rest of the time is like the example, what I bring to this is what I called a CRIP, um, C-R-I-P, CRIP or Mad of Color Critique of Incarceration and Abolition. And what I mean by, um, you know, CRIP is a reclaimed term by people with disabilities. Um, mad uh, is a reclaimed term, just like queer is a reclaimed term. And what this CRIP or Mad of Color Critique does is that it's not just about people who identify or are even politicized as disabled people of color who are caught up in the system of policing and incarceration. It's also about centering the experiences of disablement and ableism in criminal, racial, and social justice movements. And here I want to pause and say that uh, ableism, uh, labor extraction, carcerality, policing were and are constructed on anti-blackness and on colonialism even though they don't only operate on the bodies of people of color. And this is why this is a crip or mad of color critique. It's bigger, of course, um, than particular populations, but it's definitely something that was constructed on anti-blackness, uh, uh, ableism, and colonialism. Again, my example is deinstitutionalization as a knowledge of resistance, deinstitutionalization as abolition. And the reason why I think this is really important, and this is the kind of, quote-unquote, cultural competency that I want to bring to you today, the cultural competency of mad and disabled people's knowledge, is that when we, um, a lot of us who are abolitionists, talk about abolition, people say it could never happen, or it can't happen now. Or if it happens, it will happen in, like, Sweden or Norway. People always say Norway, Sweden. But surely not in the U.S., right? Surely not now, not in the system that we have now, capitalism and all that. Uh, racism, but it already happened. Spoiler. <laughs> so abolition, this is like my whole point, um, one of my points for today, abolition already happened. And it happened in the form of the closure of large state institutions for people who are disabled. So I define deinstitutionalization in three ways. One is the transition of people with psychiatric or intellectual or developmental or other disabilities from state institution and hospitals into community living, right? Where did people end up? It's also the closure of these facilities, right? So abolition is about building, absolutely, but it's also about shutting it down. 
And this is, you know, part of the definition of deinstitutionalization. But what I add to that is that deinstitutionalization is not just a process, not just something that happened. It's a, a logic, it's a framework, it's a movement. But instead of learning from the lessons of deinstitutionalization for abolition, it is often blamed for the rise in incarceration. In a lot of my work, I try to you know, push against that. Just to say very briefly, the deinstitutionalization w- was not the culprit in the rise of incarceration and the crisis of mental health in prison. Again, spoiler alert, the crisis of mental health in prison happens because of prison. And people who are, quote-unquote, homeless or housing insecure, and, you know, we know this kind of, like, re- revolving door story, right? Like, people exited psychiatric institutions, they, they went, on, um, you know, on the streets, and then they ended up in prisons and in jails. This is not an accurate story of how, first of all, deinstitutionalization happened. And secondly, it blames deinstitutionalization for really big structural issues, like the complete annihilation of affordable, accessible housing at exactly the same time that money started going to corrections. This is why we see a rise in incarceration. This is why we see a decimation of the welfare state, because those happened exactly at the same time. What we call Reaganomics and later on neoliberalism, this is what we're talking about. So blaming deinstitutionalization for that also diverts attention from this basically state abandonment, as uh, Ruthie Gilmore calls it. By painting deinstitutionalization as the culprit, it also leaves the disabling effect of incarceration itself intact. Like, we don't critique the fact that the reason why there's so many disabled and uh, crazy people, people who experience mental health crisis in prison, is because of prison. It's because of jail. It's because of incarceration itself. It's because of trauma. It's because of things like um, strip searches, which are nothing but basically sexual assault that happened to people day in and day out. I could give more examples, but I don't want to trigger people. But prisons, um, jails, very disabling, very maddening. And if we blame deinstitutionalization, we don't actually get to the root of the problem here. Well, let me move on to like my kind of uh, second example here. So in 2012, this is for people who are Chicago, um, people who might remember this. In 2012, the governor of uh, Illinois at the time, Pat Quinn, announced the closure of a variety of carceral facilities. So this was the fruits of, of fighting for deinstitutionalization in the state of Illinois. He announced he's going to close two developmental centers, um, psych hospitals, two juvenile correction facilities, women's prisons, and uh, TAMS, the only supermax prison in Illinois. Although this was driven by a larger policy, uh, the plan to close down these facilities also came as a result of really targeted activism, so clap yourself in the room if you were a part of that. One of the issues was, though, that a lot of the people who were part of this organizing didn't really kind of talk to each other. So deinstitutionalization activists and people who do anti-prison work often don't uh, talk to each other. So one of the examples that I want to bring to you is the example of fighting against this anti-closure arguments and fighting for it together. Uh, Who do you think resists, or who do you know if you were a part of that struggle? Um, who resists the closure of carceral facilities like prisons and um, psychiatric hospitals? Who's against it? Guards, unions, Guards, unions. experts, politicians with special interests, fascists. 
<laughs> fascists, police. Oh, insurance companies, pharmaceuticals, some mental health providers. Great. So these are the people, but great, I mean awful, but these are the kind of main people, and those are people that, that resist both the closure of prisons and um, disability institutions. It's people who have kind of an economic interest in it. So it's unions, workers, people with economic stake, politicians. In the arena of uh, disability, uh, unfortunately, it's also parents. Parents for people with disabilities, especially intellectual disabilities, some of them are very much against the closure of institutions. Um, I'll get to that a little bit later. There's a lot of differences between prisons and institutions, but when you go to rallies against closure, which I have, of these various carceral facilities, the picture is very similar. It's people usually mobilized by the union, and they are, um, have signs that say something like save blah, blah, blah facility, um, you know, something about um, jobs, something about safety always, something about safety or something about danger. Um, and the, the safety in disability arenas is often the safety of the people inside, right? Like they will not be safe on the outside. If this institution closes, they will die on the streets or they will die in whatever the community. But uh, in prison, it's usually the safety of the people on the outside, right? Like we can't release dangerous people. It's also about the safety of the workers often. There's also a lot of discourse around choice in home, like don't... In, especially in the disability arena, don't close my home. And often places call it something, something home, like nursing home or convalescent home and so on. This uh, issue of closure is a lot of around notions of choice, notions of home, notions uh, of labor, and a lot, of course, about the political economy of incarceration itself because institutions and prisons are seen as an engine of economic growth. They're seen as sites of employment, which is why there's a lot of um, resistance from union, of course, both AFSME, um, AFSCME, um, and the police and prison officer union. And, you know, in that regard, James Kilgore, who's a longtime uh, abolitionist um, and formerly incarcerated activist, he asks whether or not the task of a union is to represent the interest of the members or the working class more generally. And I think this is a very big question for guard unions um, and unions in uh, disability institutions as well. So, of course, despite the opportunity to create coalition building between labor movements, disability rights movement, uh, prison, it's often the case that union represent one of the staunchest critiques against uh, abolition or closure of uh, prisons and institutions. And in relation to deinstitutionalization, for example, um, AFSCME, I'm sure you all know, it stands for the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employee Union. In the 70s, they were really big uh, against deinstitutionalization, and they still are. And they wrote these reports and got ads in the radio. Remember the radio? Yeah, the thing before Spotify. Yeah, you know, um, really like they took up space uh, and time and money to show um, how deinstitutionalization means dumping people in the streets and how people are going to end up like in jails. Um, remember what I said earlier about this kind of like false narrative about blaming deinstitutionalization? It started... And it didn't start, but it was spread by stuff like this. So just to kind of give you a heads up. But moving on more like to today, the interest to keep these places open is, of course, economical. But it's also often couched in terms of um, the best interests of the people, especially in disability arena. 
where the impetus is not just to work, but the impetus um, or what workers are told in these spaces is that they also need to care, right? These are called, you know, care facilities. And so it's really important to also think about the effective, with an A, the effective economy of care, not just the kind of political economy of care. I don't have a lot of time to get into it today, but a lot of people write about the effective economies of care. The reason why I'm saying effective with an A is because it's about uh, eliciting these, um, you know, kind of emotional registrars and particularly, you know, thinking about who does the caring so in order to understand the resistance to closure of carceral places, it's important to understand the differences and similarities between employees who work in these spaces. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics for Illinois, just as an example, correctional officers make an average of $27 an hour, while home health aides, psychiatric aides, uh, nursing assistants, orderlies make between 11 and 14 an hour. So this is not the same the stakes are not the same in these two facilities. The benefit for keeping institutions and prisons open is, of course, economic, but there's a lot of difference, especially in terms of race, ethnicity, and gender, as well as pay rate in terms of employees. In addition, the discussion about unions and their resistance to closure of carceral spaces often paints the working class in very masculine terms. You know, we've seen uh, in our heads prison guards, um, union leaders, and although that is not true to all carceral facilities, if we add disability institutions into the mix, it's of course true that in penal facilities, these are mostly white and masculine, even if the job is held by women, the jobs are still masculine jobs. Um, the case in disability settings today is almost the mirror image of that, because most workers are women uh, and of color, a lot of uh, migrant workers, and the job is very feminine because you're supposed to care, right? So this is a nurturing kind of job. My point is we have to think coalitionally about these spaces, but we have to understand the differences as organizers. When we talk about the union resistance, who is the union? What do they represent? And what are the workers also beyond the union? What are the workers, because the unions don't always represent uh, the workers, who are the workers in these facilities? And especially with the institutionalization, a lot of disability support staff now works primarily in the private sectors for companies that hire them to work directly in the homes of disabled people. So the question for unions and to workers who care is how to respond to the changing economic and social realities of deinstitutionalization, for example, in ways that get their economic and emotional needs met without holding on to either defunct industries or any industry that's really morally bankrupt and uh, warehouses people for care or profit or both. And in this case, it doesn't matter if it's care or profit or both. And the, the other thing I want to say is that alternatives to incarceration and useful home care responses also have to be feminist because the people who do this care work are feminized, uh, are women. People who do this care work now for people with disabilities are often family members of people with disabilities. And I'm sure you can understand that it's mostly either mothers or siblings that uh, do the care work and, of course, are not paid to do that as care work goes. I wanted to end with an example and then move to another um, and then move towards like more conclusionary take-home lessons. In 2012, 
when the governor of Illinois announced this potential closure that I was describing earlier, um, he also talked about the closure of TAMS, the supermax prison in Illinois. And at that time, mothers of people who were incarcerated in TAMS marched to AFSCME quarters in Chicago carrying signs stating, I am a mom and my son is not a paycheck. These signs alluded, of course, to placards um, held by sanitation workers, um, black men who worked in Memphis in 1968, which is the last protest Martin Luther King Jr. participated in that said, um, right, I mean, they're saying, I am a mom. Those uh, placards said, I am a man. This was an attempt to utilize the trope of motherhood to bring um, to light another, quote unquote, the civil rights issue of our time, which is mass incarceration and its relation to racism and to capitalism. My son is not a paycheck. By the powerful use of these uh, gendered uh, dynamics of motherhood, the protesters tried to show AFSCME as the guards union that it was on the wrong side of history. But in the institutional arena, this is much more complex. This is what I was alluding to earlier. There are a lot of parents, a lot of them are mothers, uh, but parents in general, that really use the notion of rights and choice to talk about how their kids need to stay in institutions. I want to say that we have to think about this structurally. Uh, Choice became a prominent idea. Choice is not a neutral term. It became a prominent idea in a neoliberal context at the same time that resources to housing, welfare, healthcare were eroding. So people are made to fight over intentionally depleting resources. Constructing services based on a market economy through this idea of choice, in theory means that people with disabilities and their uh, family would be able to select the best course of action for um, the person. And this is what in disability worlds is called the continuum. The continuum approach means that uh, people with disabilities should be able to live in a less restrictive setting and more restrictive settings. So for people with high needs, they would be able to um, be in uh, institutions. For people who um, have lesser needs, they should live in community uh, or can live in community, in the community with supports. And in between, there's like nursing homes and um, Uh, boarding homes and group homes and all of those things. So this is the idea, and this has been a policy in the disability world since the 60s. It's called the continuum or the less restrictive environment, if you ever encounter that. So the problem with that approach is that it validates incarceration as a morally valid choice. It's just one choice out of many. You can either incarcerate somebody or they can live you know, in the community, and you, as if it's a choice at all, especially when living in the community with support is not actually given to people as a quote-unquote choice. So I'm not trying at all to vilify parents. I'm just saying that it's a Ponzi scheme. And unfortunately, people use the language of choice. There is no choice. The whole notion of continuing makes it appear as if, if, as if somehow there is. So what are some lessons that we can learn from deinstitutionalization? So first of all is a lesson I think which is really important around who can be decarcerated. Some of the most pervasive arguments against deinstitutionalization is the widespread belief that certain people are always going to need some kind of segregation. They're always going to need to be restrained. Some people, quote-unquote, high support needs, they cannot live in the community. I'm just voicing what people say. 
cannot live in the community. Some people um, should not be outside of prisons. But what deinstitutionalization shows us is that deinstitutionalization didn't become abolitionary until it kind of went all the way, until it was non-reformist, meaning until people, including disabled people, mad people, their families, experts, said no more, no continuum, no least restrictive environment. Warehousing people is morally bankrupt, close them all. And when that happened, this is when deinstitutionalization became abolitionary. So not all forms of deinstitutionalization are abolitionary, but I think this is the lesson. This cannot be a choice. If we say some people need to be restrained, it makes it look viable and like it is just one choice out of many, but it is not. Genocide is not a choice. Incarcerating people, caging people, not a choice. Should never be. You're listening to Liat Ben Moshe on deinstitutionalization. This is Independent Alternative Radio. For copies of this program, call us 1-800-444-1977. Again, that's 1-800-444-1977. Or go online, our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. So the question most often talked about, particularly for those who critique abolition, is about people who have the most challenging or dangerous, quote-unquote, behaviors. And in prison abolition, this is called um, what to do with the dangerous few. Maybe you've heard about it, right? Like a lot of people say, well, let's, you know, decarcerate, uh, of course, people with drug offenses, uh, blah, blah, blah. But surely there'll be people who uh, have to be uh, incarcerated, right? The serial killer, serial rapist. What do we do with those? And, and I'm, I'm using that language also because, you know, I teach and that's really like the first thing that the students kind of raise their hands like, what about the serial killers? You know, I don't want to kind of divert that question. I just want to say that this is also happens in the realm of disability when people talk about what about the people who with the most significant or profound disabilities. So I see kind of like a mirror question here. In both cases, the general assumption is that these are the population that will not be able to kind of make it on the outside and therefore will always require some sort of segregation and restraint, either for their own good or for the public's good. But through the lens of abolition, or what I was telling you earlier, what I call a crip or mad of color critique, or disability justice, we can use this question to develop what Angela Davis called a very different social landscape of a non-carceral society. To me, the question of the dangerous few in regards to the question of deinstitutionalization, for example, was to start from the quote-unquote dangerous few. So a lot of uh, institutions that closed down uh, in the arena of intellectual developmental disabilities, for example, started with the people with the quote-unquote most profound needs. And I mean like really like medical needs, people who you said they will always live in some kind of you know, hospital environment, people who have complex you know, behavioral needs and so on. But if you start the work of abolition and decarceration from that, then it's very easy to then decarcerate people that have less needs, needs for support, medical needs, and so on. This, I think, is a very profound thing for us to understand uh, abolition, because the current focus, unfortunately, especially in criminal justice reform, is on what people call the non-non-nons, right? The non-violent offenders, non-serious offenders. I'm using the word offender because that's the system 
word, the non-sexual offenders. Like, yes, of course, let's decriminalize uh, marijuana, uh, maybe decriminalize all drugs. Why are we so progressive? This is amazing. But we don't actually go to the question of, you know, what, are, what about people with actual, you know, real challenging like, behaviors? This is a big lesson from deinstitutionalization is that we have to start there. And I think this is also the core of feminist thinking. This is the core of Black Lives Matter, right? In order for Black Lives Matter, trans Black Lives need to matter, and so on and so on. You always start from the most marginalized. I mean, this is how liberation happens. I think this also eschews the question of violence because the focus on the non-non-nons masks the violence of the state and lets state apparatuses define what violence means. So, you know, if you spit on a guard in a prison, that's violence, but incarceration is not. And that is incredibly problematic. And so, as abolitionists say, you know, the, the real serial killer is the state. The, the dangerous few question completely askews the analysis and what we're talking about. So I promised that I would end, I could go on and on talking about other lessons of deinstitutionalization, but I promised that I would end a little bit with now. Now meaning in the U.S. we are in an era of deinstitutionalization. Deinstitutionalization is not a failure. It actually succeeded. It did not lead to um, you know, the rise of incarceration or not in a kind of one-to-one one -one situation. Again, a lot of states did not decarcerate as much as we would like them to. So what happens now? Well, uh, unfortunately... I want to give some examples of the political economy of not incarceration, but decarceration. What does it look like now? In 2015, American Friends Service Committee, with grassroots leadership, authored a report called The Treatment Industrial Complex. This is where we're now. We're not just in the institutional industrial complex. We're not just in the prison industrial complex. I think, the, I think we're in the treatment industrial complex. The treatment industrial complex shows the shift on the part of the incarceration industry into areas like mental health and basically what we call alternatives to incarceration. So, for example, GEO, which is, of course, the second largest private prison company in the U.S., created a subsidiary called GEO Care, which provides mental health services in prison in addition to operating state psychiatric hospitals that have forensic units. And, of course, the irony of a for-profit company providing mental health services to counter the disabling effects of its own prisons um, should not be lost to anybody. This is what I call carceral ableism, or in this case, carceral sanism. And sanism is uh, the oppression that people with mental health differences face, or actually the imperative to be sane, and the pressures uh, and the oppression that is caused by that, that is sanism. So carceral ableism or carceral sanism are the praxis and belief that people with disabilities need special or extra protections in ways that often expand and legitimate their further marginalization and incarceration. For example, mental health jails. Um, I can't tell you how much that is pervasive right now. You know, in recent meetings that I've been at with people who do national kind of organizing against new facility, you know, under the banner of no new jails, no new prisons, 
a lot of these proposed prisons are uh, about creating either mental health jails or jails that will help with the opioid crisis so that people can like you know sleep it off or whatever so it's this idea of right geo care it's about caring we're getting into the caring thing and it's again care and profit or both this is one example drug courts mental health courts all of this is carceral ableism and carceral sanism it might be clear to everybody in this room that you cannot cage people and say that you care but I want you to also think about again the mad and disabled knowledge that tells us that this is also about biopsychiatry itself this is not about just what's happening in a cage it's not just about what happens behind bars is that biopsychiatry is often the only form of treatment that we think of and the first course of action for people so when we say treatment what do we mean and do we not mean assimilation uh, I think this is a really important question and this is not just a question about what happens behind bars and of course uh, we have you know the example of uh, community treatment orders which is basically people are forced to take medication so when pharmaceuticals and and so on but I'm talking even beyond what When people are not forced to take the medications, but also when we say defund police, hire social workers, right w- what does that mean? People need more mental health care and not criminalization. Is mental health not related to criminalization? Is it not related to surveillance? Is, does it not lead to further incarceration? Does it not lead people to be then incarcerated in a psychiatric unit? Is a psychiatric unit not carceral? It's not prison. That's true. But is it not carceral? And this is also really important to think about in relation to racialization as well. So in conclusion, what a quip or mad of color critique of incarceration and abolition might give you is that it's not just about people who identify or are politicized as disabled people of color, although it's incredibly important to recognize the high numbers of Of people with disabilities who get shot by police for example again it's a framework that's based on the oppression of people of color particularly anti-blackness and indigeneity particularly through settler colonialism it was built through that frame ableism is built on that it's about centering the experiences of disablement and ableism and sanism in criminal racial and social justice movement and It's about understanding carceral ableism and carceral sanism. It's about understanding the disabling nature of incarceration itself and not blaming deinstitutionalization for it. It's about understanding that carcerality happens not just in prisons. And it's about understanding that disability and madness are fundamental to our understanding of incarceration and of abolition. The disability broadens our conceptualization of incarceration and that criminalization is only one pathway leading to carcerality and surveillance. And criminalization is very tied to racialization, very tied to pathologization. And lastly, that we need a lot of collaboration and coalition building between disability, mad, anti-psychiatry, self-advocates, and prison and police, abolitionists and scholars. Thank you. Okay. 
So I'm a child psychiatrist who's been feeling some moral injury because of the whole way our system is not functioning. I love your term, the treatment industrial complex. So one of the things that's happened in Pennsylvania, they got rid of a lot of programs for children that were community and school-based, and now children go in and out of hospitals, and they get pumped up with a lot of medication that they really don't need. This field itself says that 70% of kids don't need the medication they're on. There's been a 4,000% increase in children being placed on medications. And they go in and out of these hospital spaces, which often do not provide treatment, often exacerbate trauma and injury. And uh, my job is just to keep things going, but not really address the real needs and issues. I'm an ex-social worker um, who now studies mental health courts and um, treatment in jails and prisons. And uh, my question is partially just related to the language of prisons and the language of courts and alternatives to incarceration being really preoccupied with this concept of rehabilitation. Um, I'm super curious about the ways that rehabilitation and sort of healthism begin to intersect with what we see in Uh, even like the word corrections. And I think that there's this really interesting like imperative to cure that happens to be particularly prevalent in the criminal legal system's treatment of madness. And I would love to hear from other folks who maybe have thoughts or insights about the ways that our system of quote unquote fixing people who have criminal thoughts or behaviors, also in quotes, intersects with the way that psychiatry operates around pathologizing and treating and assimilating people. I was wondering if you might be able to say more or something more specific about 988 and its development. If you can say also some more (laughs) about peer-run compliant respite centers, that's something that I've been really interested in. Um, I want to say that I'm part of this organization, a startup organization, in the city of Cambridge, Massachusetts, called TART. And one of the things that's been happening in our preliminary calls is that parents with um, children with both physical and developmental disabilities have called us for just childcare. There's a person whose child is autistic and she's called us several times just so she could take a nap. (laughs) And that's one of the things that we could offer. So I'm just thinking about these sorts of things, if you have stuff to say on all of that. Thank you. Um, I'm an internist, but I do addiction medicine and uh, integrated medicine. And I'm also autistic and ADHD. What I'd like to hear more about is not just advocacy for people with disabilities, but also our self-advocacy, right? Nothing about us without us, but also our involvement in our own liberation and our own... Well, that's basically it. I I think the medicalization problem I've been dealing with my entire career trying to figure out what it is that I'm supposed to do. I, I think we have a, a belief within our training that we are the experts. We know uh, what's needed, what everyone needs. But what we really need is uh, a culture where the person who has the lived experience is the expert. Uh, and we are there to help them meet their own needs and understand their own values and goals. It's only a disability when we're not accommodated for the, the things that make us different. It's really important to also emphasize that that diversity isn't an impairment necessarily. It's actually a different way of being, merely, right? Um, it's a strength of mine to, to look at the world through my autism. 
And I often wonder what makes the neurotypical think that they see things more clearly than, than I do. In fact, I, <laughs> I, this, the, the most essential thing there is I don't understand how neurotypicals think they can read each other's minds, right? <laughs> that's, that's really what they say, and I don't think it's real. I think that leads to a lot of problems rather than solutions. So thank you. Thank you so much for this amazing engagement. One of the things that I think is connected to a lot of the questions is about uh, peer, peer support, peer accountability, and mutual aid. And I know that for a lot of people, that is not enough of an answer of what is the vision, or what should we do, or what's the alternative, but it really is a lot of that. And that's also the issue with the 988. So specifically with the 988, you know, which is the, the hotline that's been uh, kind of uh, rolled out in recent weeks. It, it used to be a, a hotline for a suicide prevention, and now it's a hotline for everybody in mental health crisis. The idea behind it is that it's um, whoever you call, you know, is not going to kind of bring armed people into your home. But I don't think that we have enough information about who did the rolling out and how much involvement there was from actual mad people, particularly people of color, particularly people who are closer to this nexus of what I call racial criminal pathologization, meaning exactly this kind of nexus that creates increased uh, risk to death. Um, and other harms by the hands of uh, police, by the hands of doctors, by the hands of incarceration, um, more generally the carceral state. Since we don't know how much involvement there was, I'm going to assume that maybe it wasn't prominent. And I think that that becomes very problematic because the people who are going to be harmed by something like 988 is, again, this whole idea of, okay, it's not going to be cops, it will be a social worker. It's going to be, you know, somebody uh, of that nature. But remember that social workers are also the people that can take away your kids. They're also mandatory reporters. Uh, This is a system of surveillance and tracking. Again, I'm not here trying to say everything's bad, why didn't, you know, not at all, but I want us to just be critical and I want us to think about can uh, we do better and can we create responses that are peer led? Who's the best person to understand somebody in mental health crisis? It's somebody who was in mental health crisis, right? For example, there's uh, hearing voices networks, both here and uh, globally, and this is, you know, networks of people who literally hear voices that other people don't, and who's the best person to kind of talk to that experience than people who've experienced it, the same with people who experience psychosis, and so on. So I think, yes, peer support. Also, um, in relation to the question about community care and accountability and care beyond the state, I've written quite a lot in my youth about the connection between anarchism and disability. And in a piece we called uh, Queer Cripping Anarchism from a million years ago, we tried to propose this idea of DIY, you know, was then a very prevalent kind of thing within especially green anarchy. Uh, you know, let's go back to the jungle and the roots and all that against the state and whatever. But the point <laughs> that we try to make is to talk about things like care collectives, which are viable abolitionist like things that are happening now beyond the state. I know three people that have care collectives, meaning a care collective, it's people who have personal assistance, but either the state won't pay for that or won't pay enough. And so people volunteer hours to be a part of these care collectives. Sometimes it's kind of mutual. 
people with disabilities don't just uh, get cared for. They also uh, bring a lot to, to the table, and they also care for other people. And so care collectives are another example. The, all the networks of people that are, again, in psychosis or in crisis are another example. And then also, if people are interested in actual policies, I think there was a question about that. You know, in the U.S., people really try to, for many years, um, disability activism, and this is not disability justice, this is like even just disability rights people, really try to push for this idea of money follows the person. So meaning that if a person gets disability benefits, it shouldn't go to the institution or the place, which if you don't know, this is exactly what's happening. Like if you get disability benefits and you live in an institution, whether it's private or state, the money goes to the place, not to the person. And so the idea is if the money goes to the person, then they can hire a personal care attendant, including their family, which you know do a lot of the care uh, anyway or would want to. And this is in relation to the alternative. So yes, join that fight. If you know, kind of policy legalization is your jam, we need a lot of work. And then uh, lastly, I just want to say two things. Uh, one is about... This idea of, you know, not leaving people behind, this really brings the question of what Andre Gore's G-O-R-Z, I believe, uh, called non-reformist reforms. This idea that we can't actually let people languish while we try to abolish the thing that we're trying to abolish, right? Like people can't die in prisons because we have this idea of, okay, if you're moving to a different institution, like we failed, we have to... Uh, we do it like with the people, because we are the people. The non-reformist reform, I think, is really just us on the ground figuring out, okay, we have an abolitionist horizon, but what are the steps like to achieving it while not like losing people in the process? So um, I think I will open it up uh, again, and then if I have time, I'll talk about the question of corrections and rehabilitation. Thank you so much for your talk. I'm a mother of a child with a neurological differences and developmental uh, differences, and um, also a co-founder of Mothers on the Front Line. And I would love to hear your advice about how to coalition with parents. We're trying to build a children's mental health justice framework for exactly these issues. We focus on the lived experience of caregivers trying to navigate these very oppressive and carceral systems. What often happens is parents are put in a position that they're trying to prevent their children from falling into school-to-prison pipeline policies of seclusion, restraint, and suspension, prevent them from being actually incarcerated, and as a result, end up over-medicating them or putting them in other carceral treatment systems. How might we all coalition together to prevent that? And the other piece of it is, because of our patriarchal system, it is mostly mothers doing this care work or female or feminized relatives, and we are being disabled by our care work. I have complex trauma, and, um, but it's not from my child. And this is what we need to talk about. It's from the institutions that have traumatized my family. I'm afraid my other children will be taken away because of what's going on with him. I'm afraid the police will get to the school before I do because they don't know how to help accommodate his needs. So I don't know if that, but I would love to hear how we can coalition with parents rather than having this kind of division we seem to have in the activism world. Thank you. Uh, I was thinking a little bit about like how do we get the care that we, we need and how can people provide care to each other without burning out without you know like the reliance on institutional spaces because typically it seems like 
first step is someone needs care. It's usually in the nuclear family. And then it's like, we, we don't have the resources or like we're burnt out or like this is too much. So then there's institutions. I'm wondering how much we could link this back to like the abolition of the nuclear family and starting new family forms so that the family is a much bigger space that there's much more care available because we're not limiting it to this like nuclear uh, blood type like family orientation and instead creating a different type of family and I'm thinking a lot about what that means like the resources that you need for that but how do you even just start that right now what does it look like to actually create a space where we have enough people, we have enough resources, we're collectively sharing those, so that the care collective doesn't have to be built when you're an adult. It's like built from the time that, when you're born. Like you are being born into a care collective. I'm also a parent, by the way, of a disabled, now adult. You know, just to throw away some kind of resources, you know, a variety of people who talk about like non-coercive, I mean, that's really kind of the issue, right? Like non-coercive and consensual things that are abolitionary. It's really important not to talk about alternatives because think about if we would say words like, I have an alternative to eugenics. <laughs> an alternative to genocide would be, you know, that is nonsensical, right? So, I mean, we should exactly do the same with incarceration. It should make no sense to us whatsoever. Um, and I think that that's really, um, if it wasn't clear, like one of the deep kind of lessons from deinstitutionalization too is like if we understand disability differently and we understand madness differently, then it would make no sense to us. And lastly, I just want to say I don't conflate medical care with medicalization. Like I think those are different things. I think medicalization is this kind of pathologization that we do. It's a thing that makes something like uh, giving birth, for example, gets medicalized. A lot of things like get medicalized. But medical care is something we should all have for just living. So I think we can talk about what like affirmative medical care and mental care would mean. I, I don't think medicalization is the same thing. Medicalization is like the oppressive side of it. And I think this is like kind of confuses people. Um, I, th- I don't think people with disabilities are against getting like what we need. I think we are just against the medicalization of our uh, political identities. So thank you very much for being here. You were just listening to Liat Ben Moshe on deinstitutionalization. She spoke at the Socialism 2022 conference in Chicago. Liat Ben Moshe, a disability scholar, teaches criminology, law, and justice at the University of Illinois at Chicago. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are an independent progressive nonprofit in our 37th year. We are supported solely by individuals just like you. We feature voices rarely heard in the corporate media, such as Rami Khoury, Sarah Lee Whitson, Noam Chomsky, Chris Hedges, Arundhati Roy, and Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. For copies of today's program, Liat Ben Moshe on deinstitutionalization, 
and for Rebecca Solnit's book, Call Them by Their True Names, American Crises, just give us a call, 1-800-444-1977. That's 1-800-444-1977. Or go to our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. Printed transcripts, PDFs, and MP3s of this program are free of charge. Just give us a call, 1-800-444-1977. Series theme music is performed by the Kronos Quartet from Pieces of Africa. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening. Well, just go to the website, alternativeradio.org, alternativeradio.org. Uh, we, too, are independent and are supported solely by listeners who make donations, uh, purchase transcripts, MP3s, or CDs for our programs. So we're very much uh, dependent on listeners out there. So who's Joey? What? Joey Ramone? Leader of the greatest punk rock band in human history? Now shut up. Hey, this is Joe Ramone here, and you're listening to CJSW 90.9 FM. What are you, 34, 35? Why don't you cut your hair and grow up, huh? You want to know why Joey Ramone's my hero? Because people like you never managed to grind him down. They never stole his spirit. He never gave in, never gave up, and never sold out. Right till his last breath. Guys like that, they live forever. No!